2: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a potential breakthrough for COVID-19 patients. CNBC's Meg Terrell on the relatively common steroid that could help save lives.
3: Scientists have been hunting for months through libraries of existing compounds to find anything that might have a benefit against this.
2: And Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the news that buoyed hope and markets, at least for now.
4: This is
3: an important finding. It's
4: going to change dogma. I think it needs to be replicated. It's going to probably have an immediate impact on what doctors are doing in the yep. ICU setting.
2: Then CNBC's annual list of up-and-coming companies we call disruptors. This year, Stripe snagged the top spot. CEO John Collison on how his payment platform has worked for businesses staying afloat during a pandemic.
1: We've seen all manner of things during the lockdown. Maybe one of my favorites was, um, I think it's youprobablyneedahaircut.com. And there were all also seeing a huge amount of adaptation uh, from, especially say, retail businesses, restaurants moving from uh, you know solely in person trading to uh, starting to move online.
2: Those stories and more. It's Tuesday, June sixteenth, twenty twenty. Squawk Pod begins right now.
5: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin, and, and let's start with the market.
2: First up today on the podcast, two signs of optimism that are driving to a Tuesday surge in the U.S. stock markets. The first, a record jump in retail sales. Americans slowly emerging from coronavirus shutdowns began shopping again. In the month of May, consumers spent 17.7% more than a month prior, a record leap. And the second, a headline emerging this morning while we were on the air that a British study of COVID patients treated by dexamethasone, a steroid that's been widely available for years, was so effective for those on ventilators that it reduced risk of death by a third. Here's what that news sounded like today on Squawk Box.
6: Have you seen this dexamethasone? I've been asking if we could do this dexamethasone uh, uh, report, and that is, this is on the Daily Mail, it's on, it's everywhere, but they're saying biggest, they're, they're hyping it a little, biggest coronavirus breakthrough yet as the steroid dexamethasone reduces risk of death by up to one-third in patients on ventilators. In a big study that's going on over in Britain, it's also on the BBC's Uh, uh, Also reported on it. um, Major breakthrough is another headline is dexamethasone found to reduce the COVID death rate. I don't think any of the drugs so far. And it's a big uh, study that they're conducting on many different drugs. And I don't think we've seen a third in terms of reducing uh, the COVID-19 death rate, giving low doses. It's a generic, generic steroid drug. Uh, injected to patients.
5: It's great to see this. This is just another one of those additional things we've been waiting for. Everybody's waiting for a vaccine, but along nice. the way, you're also waiting for any of these therapies that could improve um, the statistics in terms of who survives this and, and how people survive this, too. Well, so we'll continue to watch this remember, closely. Remember, we,
6: we, we've heard that, that when you have that immune reaction, that cytokine storm, that is what causes so m- yeah. many of the problems with, uh, with covid We've heard sometimes giving steroids, there were mixed results. Sometimes it seemed like the steroids then made you more susceptible to, to the infection of the virus itself. It may not work as well when you're trying to deal because with it. Because it
0: stepped up your body's reaction. Right, right.
6: But, but steroids have been thought of. Andrew, what, what, what's up? Well, no, I just
7: wanted to put some detail on some of these numbers, because they, they looked at 2,000 hospital patients that were given it compared to 4,000 patients who didn't. But specifically, and this is the important part, and I don't know if you're going to take this uh, as a positive or not. It's positive, but uh, maybe incrementally positive. For patients on ventilators, it cut the death the, the cut death risk from 40 percent to 28 percent, and for patients needing oxygen, yeah. it cut the death risk from 25 percent to 20 percent. So all directionally good, but I, I would also but a, just it's suggest a third that third it, it's that right. but it, but a third is the biggest number we've seen.
6: Right, but but third is the biggest that we've seen. I don't think remdesivir was anywhere near that. Uh, and you remember how excited uh, we got around. Uh, Meg Terrell, actually, right. I think is with us now. Certainly the BBC and some of the other uh, British news services are touting are, uh, this as a pretty big deal.
3: Yeah, Joe, I mean, it just shows that we have so little right now uh, against the novel coronavirus. Scientists have been hunting for months through libraries of existing compounds to find anything that might have a benefit against this. And of course, there were huge hopes pinned on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, which obviously didn't pan out. And in fact, turned out worse than we expected with the FDA warning yesterday that not only does it not work for COVID-19, but it also makes remdesivir not work as well. Uh, So what we're seeing here is this was an Oxford uh, University uh, trial. They had also been evaluating um, other existing drugs, including hydroxychloroquine. They're quoting the the lead investigator of the trial here, saying it's the only drug so far that's been shown to reduce mortality, and it reduces it significantly. It's a major breakthrough. Of course, that mortality benefit, being able to actually show that a drug not only can help people uh, get through the disease faster, but actually save their lives. That's not something that we saw with Gilead's remdesivir. Uh, While the trial trended in that uh, direction from the NIH, it wasn't statistically significant proving that the drug actually saved lives. That drug was able to shorten the amount of time to recovery from the disease. So having a drug that's cheap and widely available that can actually have a benefit would be huge. And um, I really wanna dig more into this and learn more about the study. Yeah,
6: well, I think, we have Scott, uh, Dr. Scott gottlieb Bonded. You're familiar with, I mean, can you go into the background on this, uh, Scott, in terms of, I mean, steroids, this isn't a new idea. Are you surprised that this would have, Does it is it a a really positive effect or, or do you think it's not, could it be st- statistically uh, an aberration to, to cut death by a third, do you think?
4: Well, this is a well-designed study, so I have confidence in the study, and this is a pretty robust finding out of this study. Um, If you go to the CDC's website right now, they recommend against the use of steroids in, in the setting of COVID and acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, there's been a couple of open-label studies, not, not as rigorously done as this. It didn't show a benefit, and we know that uh, steroids used in the setting of ARDS generally. There's been a lot of studies in the past that have looked at it, including uh, ARDS induced by viral syndromes that haven't shown a treatment effect. Uh, this, is, this is a very positive finding, uh, and it's a robust finding. It's a well-done study, so I think it needs to be validated, but uh, it certainly suggests that this could be beneficial in this setting, I, I think this is an important finding. Here today.
6: So it wasn't expected to work. You just basically said, like, seen what we, with, when we've seen with other acute respiratory uh, uh, distress, and you know, steroids have not been effective, and sometimes they, if they act have been counterproductive.
4: That's right. I mean, there's, if you go to the CDC's website right now and you pull up some of the data on it, there's six, seven different studies that they reference in the setting of COVID looking back at older studies of uh, studies in the setting of ARDS and viral-induced ARDS where it's well, been negative.
6: That's, that makes me wonder, then, do you think it's repeatable? I mean, do you, at this point, you said it's a rigorous study, but maybe this should be taken with a, a grain of salt because it, it, it's so surprising.
4: I don't think so. I mean, you know, we we need to see the underlying data. We need to validate it. But it, it, we know that um, COVID is inducing a different kind of inflammatory response than than some other infections in the lungs. The sepsis that you're seeing in the ARDS from COVID is is probably induced by cytokine release. And so we know that there's there's an overwhelming inflammatory response. That's why doctors are using drugs that are more targeted to try to intervene in that, like the IL6 drugs, steroids are gonna have the same general effect. They're just not as targeted. So it's, it's plausible that, that a steroid in this setting could act differently than it would typically act in the setting of sepsis or ARDS you could postulate a reason why it might work here and not work in another setting because of the way um, COVID is affecting the lungs. We're going to we're gonna need Dr. more Gottlieb. science to understand this, but this is a well-done study. Um, this is why we do studies like this. Becky. Yep.
5: Dr. Gottlieb, the dexamethasone, I mean, do you know anything just uniquely about that steroid, why it may be different than some of the other steroids that have been used in these other um, studies?
4: Good bioavailability, I mean, it's, it's, an, old, it's an old drug. Um, it it's, has po- more potency than some other steroids that could be used in this kind of a setting, um, but it's an old available steroid. Um, you know, it's potentially, it's, it, there's the potential that other steroids could also be effective in this setting. Dexamethasone is a drug that doctors are accustomed to prescribing.
7: Hey, doctor, I have a behavioral science question, which is, you know, we're all hoping for either a vaccine or a therapeutic, And the question is that I would have about a therapeutic is, what do you think the standard has to be? What do we have to get to um, until the public would say to themselves, you know what? I know there's not a vaccine out there, but if I get sick and I take this therapeutic or, or, or some drug is available that either prevents me from going to the hospital or absolutely prevents me from dying. What do you think the stats have to look like from a public policy perspective? Uh, for that to instill the kind of confidence you'd want people to walk around uh, and, and, and come back into the economy and hopefully not have to wear masks and do all the things we want to do?
4: I think we'd have to reduce this to something closer to the morbidity and the mortality we see with the flu um, for people to feel more comfortable. You, we're we're going to be doing a lot better job. If we do have a resurgence of this in the fall, we're going to do a much better job of preserving life. First of all, Older people, people who are immunocompromised, are going to do a better job of protecting themselves. And so, you're already seeing more of the people who are getting infected are younger people. We've learned to anticoagulate patients, which is having a big impact on outcomes. That this drug, was, that this disease, was causing uh, blood clots. You know, we do have remdesivir available. We're probably going to have one or more um, antibodies directly acting antibodies available. Now, it, it appears that steroids can be used in the setting of, of critical care to reduce morbidity, mortality, potentially in the ICU. We need to understand more about this finding. So you're going to see um, the death rate come down, even in a second wave, as long as we preserve the health care system and the, and the health care system itself doesn't become overwhelmed and we can still deliver care to people.
6: All right, doctor, I want to thank you, Dr. Gottlieb. Uh, thank Thanks you, fine. Meg Terrell, as well.
2: Coming up on Squawk Pod, CNBC's annual Disruptor 50 list. The companies pushing their industries forward and challenging legacy brands to keep up. Payment platform Stripe has snagged a spot on the list for six of the last eight years. The CEO and how he plans to stay on top.
1: We are still dissatisfied with the functionality in the Stripe platform. And so we see five out of six new internet users coming online in places other than the United States and Western Europe. We want to be able to serve those. That's after this.
2: This is Squawk Pond from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin.
7: Today we are unveiling our eighth annual Disruptor 50. That's our annual list of fast-growing private companies that are transforming the economy. Julia Borston joins us now with a look at who made it onto this year's list. Julia.
5: Good morning to you, Andrew. Well, this year's list was drawn from more than 1300 nominees calculated based on a mix of quantitative and qualitative metrics with help from an advisory board of more than 50 leading academics from business schools around the world. And this year, we included an extra round of assessment to take into account each company's response to the pandemic. Here are the first five companies on this year's Disruptor 50 list. Number five, Klarna. The online payment company offers short-term credit to shoppers at more than 200,000 e-tailers and has become one of Europe's largest banks.
4: If we can play a part in disrupting
7: this industry and actually drive margins down, by giving consumers a better offer, um, you know, that I think we have accomplished something great.
5: Number four, Coursera. Demand soared for this online learning pioneer when COVID 19 hit and remote learning became the only option. Number three, Indigo Agriculture, on a mission to fight climate change and secure the world's food supply. Its Teraton initiative pays farmers to enrich their soil with carbon and keep it out of the atmosphere.
4: And then over time, as as farmers change their practices, we're actually reducing their footprint, in fact, can even flip that around and make farming carbon positive. So start to be part of the solution.
5: Number two, Coupang, the Amazon of South Korea with a few twists, including reusable packaging and Dawn delivery. It's promised to deliver orders placed before midnight by 7 a.m. the next day. And number one, Stripe. If you're buying just about anything online, Stripe is likely helping with the payment. Partners range from Amazon to Zoom Video. The world's highest valued FinTech company is backed by all-star investors, including Andreessen Horwitz, Peter Thiel, and Elon Musk. The company committed to remote work more than a year ago, hiring over 100 engineers with Home as their home base. So it's been able to handle surging demand as all of its employees now work from home. This year's Disruptor 50 raised nearly $75 billion, massing a combined valuation of more than $277 billion. You can find the whole list plus more about our methodology on CNBC.com slash disruptors. Andrew.
7: Nice list. Uh, quick question for you. What, what are really the, the trends that you're seeing that emerged on on this year's list relative to last year's list?
5: Well, we saw more fintech than ever. There were 12 fintech companies, five of which were focused just on payments. Of course, we had Stripe in the number one spot. And also, as we focus more on the trends that are accelerated by the pandemic, we saw healthcare and logistics. And then in terms of the underlying technology this year, huge emphasis on machine learning and artificial intelligence. More than half of the companies on the list said that they use either AI or or machine learning.
7: Okay. Maybe a trickier question. What about the issue of diversity? And I ask because there's been so much focus on the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley. So how does this list stack up this year?
5: Well, this list really reflects the lack of funding to black CEOs in Silicon Valley. There is not a single black CEO on this year's list. There were six female CEOs, 11 companies, which had a female co-founder. So we see the trends of of the sort of lack of diversity in terms of funding in the VC world really reflected here. Now, just to put that in perspective here, just 3% of VC funding goes to female CEOs and less than 1% to black CEOs, if you dig a back further to try to understand what's driving those trends, it's really in, in large part attributed to lack of diversity in VC investors. 65% of VC firms don't have a single VC, single female investor, and 80% of firms don't have a single black investor, um, according to All Raids and black VC. So really, um, a, a lot of questions happening right now about what can be done to improve the diversity um, among the VC community, and also in the types of companies that get funded. Um, so there have been a, a number of announcements, Andrew, whether it's from Andreessen Horowitz, a new one out today um, from the National Venture Capital Association, trying to under- address those underlying issues.
7: Okay, Julia, thanks for the list. So much to, to hear about and to also fix, and, and hopefully when we uh, hear about this list in next year and the year's years ahead, uh, those numbers will, uh, will move in the right direction. I spoke with Stripe's co-founder and president, John Collision, yesterday afternoon in a rare and exclusive interview and started out by asking him how he thinks about the state of the economy from his vantage point as an online payment processor for so many different internet businesses.
1: At a macro level, we're seeing what you would expect, which is a there has been a very sharp move from uh, the, the offline economy to the online economy. And that's been, uh, you know, very different on an industry-by-industry segment. There's some uh, industries like, say, travel, uh, which really slowed down uh, at least for a little bit. And then there are some industries uh, like, say, grocery delivery uh, remotely, which are up quite a bit. And then if you look at, you know, if you go into some of the the, the more granular data, it's uh, it's interesting what we're seeing. One thing we're seeing is just a set of um, businesses that are seeing a uh, very big spikes in demand. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, probably stuff you've already covered on the show, but, you know, companies like, you know, Zoom, who we power, uh, announced that they're seeing a 20-fold increase in demand. Instacart announced that they've seen a, a 300% increase in customer demand. So the services that we rely on to sort of power working remotely uh, or, or living re- uh, during quarantine, th- those companies are seeing very major surges in demand. That's, that's one part. The second thing we're seeing is, the creation of new businesses or businesses that previously traded solely offline starting to move online, this being the, the, the push that caused that to be the case. We're actually seeing in our Stripe Atlas data, we've seen a tripling in the number of incorporations. So Stripe Atlas, as you know, is our product for incorporating a, a new business. So tripling in the number of incorporations since this time last year. And so that's maybe both brand new businesses or businesses starting to move online for the first time. And then lastly, we're seeing uh, with the enterprises that we work with, we're seeing them starting to move much faster on initiatives that were maybe planned for a long time or they always wanted to get done. But uh, the, the lockdown has really totally upended the urgency and prioritization of those things. And so we're working with companies like the Westfield uh, retail chain or uh, uh, Toast the um, uh, that the restaurant uh, software platform to help them advance their their COVID initiative. So th- those are the kinds of changes that, that we're seeing. Just go back
7: though for a second because you, you made reference to the idea of, of businesses. Your, your second group of of new businesses. And the question I'd ask you is: From what you can tell, how much of that is old businesses transitioning, and how much of that is new businesses that are developing new business models? and the like right here in the middle of this pandemic?
1: Yeah, so, so we don't have the subgranular data to be able to say exactly for sure what the breakdown is, but we really are seeing a lot of both. Both uh, people taking time during this moment in time to build out a completely new business or a completely new line of business. We've seen all manner of things uh, during the um, uh, during the lockdown. Maybe one of my favorites was, um, I think it's youprobablyneedahaircut.com, which does remotely guided haircuts for people maybe cutting their partner's hair during uh, lockdown uh, and that business is obviously, you know, the, the, the market for remotely guided haircuts is much larger than it was. And then we're also seeing a huge amount of adaptation uh, from especially, say, retail businesses, restaurants moving from, uh, you know, solely in person trading to uh, starting to move online, doing, uh, you know, delivery and, uh, and things like this. So so we're seeing a mix.
7: So your business, to a large degree, has benefited or been one of the beneficiaries of of the pandemic, so to speak Obviously, it's accelerated the business. When you start to look at what that growth curve looks like, though, how does it change? Is it pulling that business forward? Is this sustainable? You know, when you start to look at what the next year or two looks like, how has it changed?
1: You're asking a very good set of questions that, uh, you know, you'd be welcome at, uh, you know, the the, the meetings we have internally at Stripe where we're trying to plan for these things. Uh, I think the honest answer is no one knows right now what the long-term effects are. And I think it's certainly the case that the stock market is not the economy. You also can't extrapolate too much. I think from the changes we've seen in this really this first three months of the effects. From this is not going to be over any time imminently, and I think we should reason about you know quite a different state of affairs in one year's time or in two years' time uh, than uh, you know than maybe we see today. And so we are trying to as we think about running the strike business. One, we're trying to be conservative and sensible in terms of how we run the business. In that, you know, a huge part of the internet economy is relying on Stripe to provide stable, reliable service and to make the internet economy work. And so we're trying to make sure that we're just there for the businesses that are on Stripe, regardless of what happens over the next year or two. And we think there's a pretty broad skew of outcomes that could happen there. As
7: part of your business, you've got an, you've gotten into the business of providing credit in some cases, How are you thinking about that in the context of this pandemic and what the economy may look like on the positive end or even on the negative end, depending on how things go?
1: Yeah, so I mean, we continue to uh, to make loans, and we're still investing in that line of business. Obviously, there's a, a different set of assumptions that one is going to uh, have, you know, now versus say maybe six year, uh, months ago or twelve months ago when you're making loans. But look, you know, the, the, the credit business is about being able to run a responsible, profitable credit business, regardless of the point in the economic cycle. And anyone who doesn't fully internalize that should not be running a credit business. And so we did not at all predict that uh, you know, COVID or anything like it was going to happen. But we were building Stripe Capital, our lending product, with uh, with the assumption in mind that the, the credit cycle was going to turn at some point.
7: And the other question I was going to ask is you raised about $600 million in April. What do you plan to, to do with that money? And given some of the challenges that other businesses may have, Do you imagine using some of that money to acquire rivals and the like?
1: So kind of like I referenced, our main priority and part of our thinking in that fundraising was that we wanted to be dependable for the businesses on Stripe regardless of the outcomes that, uh, you know, that took place. Uh, and, you know, especially back then uh, in March when that took place, it was a very different uh, and I would say more uncertain set of outcomes, maybe we have a, a bit more of a sense now as to wh- what the world would look like a year from now. And not only do we want to be able to provide a really reliable service that businesses could use to accept money from around the world and do so with, uh, you know, high uh, availability and things like that, we also want to be able to invest uh, during this time period, because uh, we are still dissatisfied with the functionality in the Stripe platform, and so uh, we just launched recently five new countries in Eastern Europe. We just launched, you know, global coverage our direct Visa and Mastercard integrations. We want to continue to be able to make those product investments? Um, we see. You know, five out of six new internet users coming online in places other than the United States and Western europe we want to be able to serve those uh, uh, internet users you know, COVID is not a phenomenon that's limited to, to us in the united States and we want the stripe product to reflect that i think it's possible that we uh, pursue m a as one of the things we do with making those investments but i would say you know we, we think about it at one degree of remove from that and so we think about it in terms of investing to make stripe the most robust, most reliable, most featureful platform for businesses operating online. If M&A is the right path through which to pursue that, great, let's do that. But we also think it may just be the case that we should be investing to, you know, to build that in-house.
7: I want to broaden the prism for a moment because we've had some fabulous conversations over the years about money and the Federal Reserve and sort of the state of finances, if you will, and I'm curious how you think about this moment in time. You know, we've also had conversations about cryptocurrencies, sort of if you could just to take a step back in terms of how you're thinking about the sort of broader economy and, and, and what it means and the value of a dollar.
1: Um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm still... Um making up my own mind about that. And, you know, anyone who comes to me for macroeconomic insight is going to find themselves in severe trouble. I really, I think, I you. I really liked your book on the uh, kind of the inside scoop of the financial crisis. And it is interesting to note the, the difference between the current climate uh, and, say, during 2008, where it feels like, the, you know, the current set of actions that we took paid out much faster and we pulled all the levers available to us much more quickly than in 2008 when there was maybe more tooth gnashing about them. So I haven't made up my mind on the, the long term impact of that, but I, I'm watching it. And especially as we look down the road towards you know, the risk of potential second waves or the need for, for more intervention down the road. And uh, it, it's interesting to watch. That's definitely the case. Do, do you have any new views on cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? We continue to follow the space very closely. And obviously, there, there, there continues to be interesting innovation in the space. Uh, and, you know, companies like Facebook making good progress with Libra and uh, uh, and just with Core Bitcoin, Lightning, things like that. And so we follow the place quite closely. But we also, you know, Strike does not have to do Everything finance-related. Stripe wants to be a really good way for businesses to accept money from their customers online and kind of run their revenue more broadly. And so we get really interested in cryptocurrencies as they can maybe be applied to that set of problems, and that's a space where we follow it really closely. That's not something that's reached you know, big scale or product market fit yet, just buying things online with cryptocurrencies. We think that actually could be the case, which is why we follow it very closely, but it hasn't happened yet.
7: Right. Um, we have been talking a lot on the program, uh, of course, over the past two weeks about uh, systemic racism and injustice and inequality in this world. And I wanted to talk to you about managing through that and through these times, trying to navigate it, but also some of the work that you're trying to do uh, to help um, uh, end some of these inequities and what it means to actually manage a Silicon Valley company uh, at this time.
1: Yeah, I think there's a few aspects to that. One is, uh, I mean... You reflect on your own psychology during it and how painful it is to watch much of what's transpiring, uh, not because it's new, but because it's not new. And uh, Stripe is a company of of 3,000 people. Uh, And so we've been having some some useful conversations internally on that as uh, everyone goes through that themselves. Uh, and then we've also been spending time on with Stripe how we can potentially contribute and help. And you know, this is obviously a a, a very broad thing that goes way beyond us or tech or, or, or Silicon Valley or anything like that. But we're trying to find our corner of uh, of, of contributing. Uh, and we obviously we do that in part through the uh, the Stripe product where we're supporting uh, uh, you know businesses, uh, but also uh, you know we've been looking at getting more directly involved whether it be through uh, supporting nonprofits on Stripe uh, and, uh, and sponsoring some of those, or uh, directly working with um, uh, nonprofit organizations focusing on racial injustice or police brutality. I was going to ask you about your support for uh, Fast Grants,
7: which is a remarkable uh, program that's uh, been trying to help during this time. Yeah, we
1: have been uh, really excited by the, um, the, the progress uh, made there. So this is something that uh, on, on the personal side, uh, Patrick and I, uh, along with uh, a number of other uh, sponsors, have been working on fastgrants.org, where we're basically trying to support uh, COVID-related science and support scientists who want to work on uh, COVID-related projects, but maybe are not able to get the, uh, the funding in time uh, for when it matters because the, the traditional grant-making processes are quite elongated and not set up for being responsive in the case of something like this. And so we have already dispersed uh, $20 million to, uh, to scientists, uh, and uh, I think that's across more than, uh, more than 100 scientists uh, working on individual projects, and there's a list of those on the website. But uh, it's something that gets us excited, getting uh, uh, funding dollars into the hands of scientists who, who really right. need it at this moment in time.
7: And then final question, uh, as you think about managing during this pandemic, just your own offices, you have 16, I believe, different offices around the world and you're you're distributed right now. How do you how do you as 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 the United States tries to reopen? How do you think about uh, when and if to go back to the office?
1: Yeah, we've been. Following the situations, and I think it'll probably be different in each office uh, and in each region, as the uh, you know the caseloads and uh, uh, spikes differ in each place. And so we have 16, around 15 global offices, and uh, I would expect that depe- I would expect that depending on uh, what happens uh, in each of those places, we're going to maybe have faster reopenings in some places rather than others. John, thank you so very much for joining us today. All right, thank you, Andrew.
0: Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active You're listening
2: to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin.
7: Have you seen the Have you seen the clear plastic masks they're wearing at bars in, in um, I think in Norway? It, they're the, the, the big class the big plastic ones. Is that like, so? Hey, if you walk into the bar, everybody wears these things. Is that for as clubbing? If you look so like that, an alien.
6: I I for mean clubbing for, for clubbing. clubbing. I heard people are clubbing yes, with masks. Yes, you can masks dance with, with their mask on. I would have done a lot better, <laughs> yes. I think. Uh, you know? With a mask on your face. Clubbing sure. with uh, the... With
2: Higher success rate. Right,
4: right.
6: Do you know what the, the night... I, I, I asked this to my family. I read the article about the nightclub capital of the world. There's very little going on. I saw on. that,
3: too. Berlin? No, you like, ruined
6: what? it for me. Well, I, I, then it oh, made sorry. sense to me because that's such a tech, you know, they got the tech music and they got the. I mean, that's really it, And it's Now's a vanguard. Now's the time on and, and when we dance. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Right. Anyway. All right. Andrew, we. Uh,
3: I, I couldn't believe it. I looked up that same article. We digress. The headline was so good. We I was digress. figure out what the, I didn't know which. I thought it would be was. New York.
6: But then I said, you know, right. Berlin makes sense, uh, I think. And I want to yeah. go. You know, we used to play techno music, but Greco would play. Maybe, maybe we can sneak some in.
2: That's the podcast for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, on closing and reopening factories during a pandemic and leading a modern and inclusive workforce at one of America's oldest companies. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.